this week on Dig Me Out. With your hosts, Jason Zia and Tim Minichi. Jay, this week we're doing another roundtable discussion. And this is sort of building on our, our previous roundtable, which yeah. was Metallica. Mm-hmm. And we talked about them in the 90s. And this week we're expanding to talk about all metal in the 1990s. All metal. Metal, which really feels like it should be its own podcast, metal. really. It kind of could feels, be. We could spin this off at some point. Yeah, we, we could. We could probably turn this into a whole uh, universe of various podcasts covering different genres and whatnot. So it seems kind of ridiculous to try to cover all metal in an hour to an hour and a half. But we're going to try to do that. Of course, we're not going to do that alone, Jay, because that would be utterly boring. So we brought along a, a group of folks that are going to help us dig into this massive subject and awesome. uh we've got a we've got a new person joining us this week we gonna start out with the rookie uh from akron ohio mr dx ferris Welcome hello to thank you for having me and you're a uh, a person that when we thought of this episode we were like oh well there's definitely someone we need to have on the person who's written two books about slayer uh that would be a, a, a perfect person to have on to talk about metal in the 90s so people should uh go and check out the 33 and third entry, and then you also have the Slayer 66 and two third entry for the Jeff and Dave years. Over yeah, at the, one of the books is just about Rain and Blood, and the second one is a full biography about the band in their uh, the glory days, shall we say. Not that they're not now, but some of the days were more glory days. More glorious, yes. But hey, it's great to be here. Thank you for the opportunity. I'm sure I can help you make this boring. <laughs> Well, we have uh, people who are established in helping us not make this boring, and one of those is uh, Eric Grubbs down in uh, Dallas, Texas, author of uh, Post, a book that uh, he recently discovered in a uh, bookstore. <laughs> yeah, I found it in a half-price books. So it took only seven years, but I found a used copy of it in a bookstore. How are you guys doing? <laughs> Excellent. Great. Hello. And then uh, from here in uh, Columbus, C-Town we like to not call it the man who runs kidsinterviewbands.com mr chip midnight chip welcome back thank you thanks for having me chip we're talking all lipstick. metal rules <laughs> we're talking all lipstick and leather tonight right <laughs> well <laughs> yes no uh, you you and i can do a little we'll do a little tangent on that all right all right we're not spending 90 minutes on dog eat dog oh no, no. Oh, come on. That gets its own I'm episode. Out. That'll be its own episode, yeah. All right, all right. You know, we've covered a lot of these bands, actually. You know, we mentioned the Metallic episode. Our 200th episode was on Guns N' Roses' Use Your Illusion 1 and 2, which we did a bonus, like, two-hour episode on, on those two albums with Chip. Uh, we did the Skid Row album from the mid-'90s, uh, 
what's that called? Subterranean. Sub <laughs> Subhuman what? race. Subhuman race. race. Yeah. <laughs> Subterranean. Whatever. Uh, <laughs> we've done Corrosion of Conformity. We did Circus of Power. Life, Sex, and Death, uh, which is a really obscure one, but a good record. And uh, The Cult. I mean, we've we've covered quite a bit from the 90s and the previous, but we've never sort of packaged it all into one big discussion. So this will be interesting. And we've got some comments that we I want to uh, talk about a little bit from our Patreon subscribers. So I want you guys to maybe key in on some of these comments because I think they, they bring up some good stuff. Eric Peterson said that uh, metal had peaked in the 90s and has pretty much been underground since. And that maybe we can something we can we can bring up in discussion. He said also that nineties were a time when women stepped into the metal spotlight with bands like Drain, STH, and Kitty. Neither of which I'm uh, familiar with. Some of you might be familiar with. Uh, you don't know Kitty. I don't know Kitty. <laughs> oh, you don't know Drain, you, STH. We're here for you. No, we're gonna get you through this. <laughs> See, I I take the position that I'm an I am an audience member and I am learning from you guys as much as they are. So I'm here to merely extract all the knowledge from our guests and act as a as a uh, I'm like the Alex Trebek. I didn't just reading off the cards. I don't really know what shit's going on. <laughs> Half in the bag at this point, anyways. And he also mentioned the Galactic Cowboys, who were a band that Geffen were putting all their energy into GNR, and this band got buried. So I don't know if the Galactic Cowboys will come up, but Eric wanted us to uh, check out that band. Scott Witt, who said. Um, interesting aspect of the 90s is ignoring how great albums like dog eat dog and pull are pull i'm guessing is uh is that winger, winger. yes yep. yes they, they said they were obviously playing the market um which you know obviously by 1992 which we'll get into that's obvious uh and then um you mentioned Carnival of Souls, which was, I believe, the Kiss album that came out right around that time. Um, and then he also wanted to mention the explosion of metal subgenres. And this is, this is something that DX mentioned before we started talking about the sort of the narrow casting of metal at the beginning of the decade and then the divergence of all the different subgenres that occurred um, from Swedish. And uh, Scott mentioned from Swedish death metal to industrial to new metal, to symphonic metal, which is a term I've not heard before. Mm. Um, you had bands like Amorphous and The Gathering. I, do you guys know those bands? Are those death metal? I don't. DX. Yeah, those are more uh, like like we're tipping more toward the the black metal, the more elaborate kind of um, going in the direction of things like. Black metal, symphonic metal, Celtic okay. metal, uh, heading that direction. Does Celtic metal involve bagpipes? Sometimes, yes. Wow. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Uh, and then Eric Peterson... Or folk metal, I should say. Sorry. Okay. Eric Peterson also mentioned that the Swedish death metal scene helped jumpstart some of the, what we term the high-energy rock or action rock scene... As, uh, like, for example, Entombed, Nicky, uh, what's his last name? Nicky Royale played in Entombed before he, um, before the helicopters. So yeah, he, was the he was a drummer. Which, now that you're saying that, makes me wonder if 
if that scene was kind of like punk was uh, for some bands in America in like the 80s, like, you know, the guys in Guns N' Roses, you know, like Duff played in a punk band before he eventually got to the point where he was in Guns N' Roses and I think right. Slash probably did the same thing. I wonder if that sort of was the gateway to some of these as they matured going in different directions, but it was like their first bands were sort of that extreme death metal stuff in, in Sweden. In mentioning uh, what I said, just said a few minutes ago about um, the, the sort of narrow entry point in 1990 with the bands and the, and the sounds, there was basically DX, as you mentioned, there was basically like sort of two uh, genres going on. You had your hair metal, which would be, if you're looking at 1990, you're looking at like flesh and blood by poison, warrants, cherry pie, that kind of stuff. Yeah, and even bands that, that, you know, in retrospect, were not hair metal as such. Really talented guys like uh, Slaughter and Winger uh, were kind of lumped on that pop side of things. And yep. then you, and you, had to, you had really the last big ACDC album, The Razor's Edge, was that year, uh, which had Thunderstruck and Money yeah. Talks and that kind of stuff. You had Rust in Peace by Megadeth that year, Empire by Queensryche, you know, spawned the Sound Lucidity single. So in terms of controlling both rock radio and then MTV, you know, that wasn't when everything was relegated to Headbangers Ball. You would see those metals videos during the day. Yeah, bands bands with long hair were still getting commercial airplay. So I want to ask you guys, you know, when this was going on, whether we realized it or not, but there was a percolating alternative sort of metal that was happening an example would be like Faith No More. Oh, um, uh, yeah. You know, Epic came out in 1990. Let me ask you, what were you guys listening to in 1990 as far as metal goes? Was it the straight, like, hair metal and and maybe some of the thrash and that kind of stuff? Or were you guys finding some of this more, I guess you'd say, alternative stuff? Um, it could also be, you know, I think, was this year, like, Grunt Truck had an album out, which kind of gets lumped in with... That like early grunge, but also has some nods to metal. So let me just go around to everybody. Uh, Eric, I'll start with you. What was in, at the start of the decade, start of the 1990s? What sort of metal were you listening to? Okay, let me just give you some context of where I was in my life. In 1990, I was 11 years old. Okay. And so this is sixth grade for me. Right. And I watched MTV all the time. And that meant I was, and I also listened to a lot of Top 40 radio. So that meant I was listening to CC Peniston, uh, CNC Music Factory, Vanilla Ice, MC Hammer. But I was also aware of Poison, uh, Something to Believe in. That was a great song. Love is on the Way by Saigon Kick. I, mm-hmm. I still really liked the hair metal from the late 80s, uh, like White Lion, White Snake, Bon Jovi. And as far as metal goes, I mean, I kind of knew who Megadeth was. I kind of knew who Metallica was, but it was kind of scary to me. Exactly one year later, I was still listening to pop music, but also had this little band called Nirvana, Pearl Jam, (laughs) Soundgarden, Alice in Chains. It was just added on to it. But in terms of, you know, when I, I, I read that really excellent book, Choosing Death, uh, that Albert Madrian read. Uh, sorry, that he wrote. He didn't read it. He wrote it. Um, and I, I, I know 
Yeah, I did not know of all the And if the you great don't stuff. have the expanded version of it, treat yourself. Uh, there's like 100 extra pages, a lot of new chapters. It is substantially uh, updated, expanded, hardcover, yeah. good looking too. Yeah. And, and it, it just reinforced this idea of if you're dismayed by what you see just on the pop charts and what's really popular in, in, in today, chances are there's something going on underground that's it, it might take five to six years. It might take 10 years, but it's going to blow your mind. And, and hopefully we'll get to that when we talk about at the gates later on in this episode. But that's where I was in my life. Chip, where were you? I was a uh, high school graduate. Metal Edge reading, Headbangers Ball watching, uh, Peabody's Down Under attending concert goer in 1990. So, yeah, I was uh, I was obviously huge into the hair metal. Um, but because magazines like Rip that I would read were starting to branch out into what DX was talking about and some of the heavier and harder stuff. I was buying Warrant albums, but I was also buying Metallica albums, Overkill albums, Slayer albums. So I guess uh, my metal uh, tastes were evolving in the early 90s. Okay. Still listening, like I said, still listening to all the hair stuff, but um, really anything like uh, with loud guitars, I was into so DX, what were you into at the turn of at the start of the nineties? Well, to, to give you an idea, I am forty three now. Okay. So nineteen ninety was when I graduated from high school and entered college. So I came up through the nineties. I grew up in Pittsburgh, and the reason that I mentioned that is in Pittsburgh they put classic rock in the water there. You know, growing up, by the time I was twelve, I didn't care if I ever heard the Doors and Skinner again. You know, you grow up with it, and it's just around you constantly, and you breathe it, and it's it's in the air. And Pittsburgh is very much a uh, the kind of cultural atmosphere that, that likes the traditional white male rock and roll stuff. You know, and that's that's good. You get tired of it eventually. So through the late '80s, I listened to a lot of hardcore punk and a lot of metal. You know, uh, classic rock pretty cleanly in the the '80s evolved into the different metal genres. So if you like the uh, the classic rock uh, chops, the technicality of it, uh, you know, thrash metal was the, the next logical step from a lot of that. Uh, you know, you grow up listening to. You know, a lot of Sabbath, Judas Priest, and then when Metallica comes along, prime for that. So by 1990, to answer your question, uh, you know, Thrash was peaking. You know, I've been listening to all that stuff and following it, and you know, watching it go supernova. You know, we got hip to Guns and Roses a little bit early, where I was, and uh, we were watching all those things happen. You know, I was not much of a hair metal guy at that point. Uh, through the late 80s, I discovered a lot of hip hop. So as a lot of my favorite metal bands and hardcore started waning to some degree, I got a lot of that real political content and raw aggression from hip-hop. So NWA, Public Enemy, they did a lot to uh, keep me interested in music when some of my music was falling off a little bit. So over the course of the 90s, when metal became less prominent in my life and less intricate and metal and hip-hop kind of merged, I, I was really primed for that movement okay and and jay i assume you're listening to tesla uh yeah yeah um 
you know, I think it's it's forgotten a little bit that yes, the power ballads were still, you know, on heavy rotation on MTV, but you know, the the, the pop metal, glam metal, hair metal thing, the, a lot of those bands had already started to change uh, their look a little bit and tone things down and go for more of a classic rock kind of thing. So this is the time where like you know, Cinderella is no longer doing, you know, the, the pink album covers and whatnot. And they're, they're trying to become basically an Aerosmith type band. Aerosmith is huge at this time with their career completely uh, in a full resurgence. Uh, there's bands like Badlands, which were pretty stripped down, just, you know, 70s style, you know, uh, straight up rock band. So I was into a lot of that stuff. Um, Starting to hear bands like, I mean, I remember I remember hearing Alice in Chains uh, on a cassette. Their label put them, there was some kind of release. I think they did a either a tour or some kind of um, cassette that had like stuff from uh, Judas Priest Painkiller and Alice in Chains and a couple other bands that came out at the time all mixed together. I mean, it was like a Coca-Cola nice. thing. And... Um, it wasn't Man in the Box on it. It was Sea of Sorrow. So and I really got into that. It was obviously at the time unlike anything I had heard to that point. You know, I was starting to hear some new things, some different things, but day in, day out, it was mostly, um, you know, sort of the hard rock facet of the pop metal stuff. It's it's interesting that you mentioned Judas Priest, because in prepping for the 90s stuff, I wanted to see how much of a change there was between 90 and 2000, but also between 1980 and 1990. And the thing I found was... There wasn't a huge, like, shift that, like there was, or I think there, we're going to talk about. If you go back to 1980, the biggest albums, you have Judas Priest, British Steel, Ozzy Osbourne, Blizzard of Oz, Women and Children First, Van Halen. You have albums by Scorpions, which you have Scorpions album in 1990. You have albums by Whitesnake, uh, UFO. Wow, that's interesting. Def Leppard, Triumph, Girl School, Iron Maiden. Except ACDC's Back in Black. There's a an evolution in terms of the Sunset Strip hair metal bands start to come in around 83, 84, um, and then sort of dominate the latter half of that decade. But a lot of the guard that was in 1980 were still around in 1990. Yeah, that's so, a hell of a run. Yeah. So uh, I, found the, I found on Discogs that cassette I was talking about, just mm-hmm. to give you a little taste of what was going on at that time so this is 1991 this cassette came out it was for the operation rock and roll tour does anybody remember this <laughs> um, yes. yeah i think it actually got canceled like a couple of dates into it yeah but on the tour was judas priest motorhead or allison chains europe 
Fishbone, <laughs> Metal Church, Dangerous Toys, Alice Cooper, a couple bands I never heard of, Suicidal Tendencies, Love Hate, and Cycle Sluts from Hell. Wow. So, Come yeah, on all so, the bases. And this was a Sony music thing, I think. So these were all the bands sort of at the time that Sony was obviously releasing and promoting. Um, and that's so, what you know, tanked? Yeah. I think it was... Uh, I know Judas Priest headlined it, and I know metal, like Dangerous Toys and Metal Church and Alice Cooper. I can't remember who all was on it, but um, this was the cassette they put out to, you know. To I don't think it. I don't think it was all those bands together though. Let me see who was actually on. Like I don't think it was like a festival tour with all those bands, was it? I don't know. Let me see. But I definitely remember it being like when I got that cassette. I don't know. It just opened my. It just seemed a lot more progressive in terms of the different varieties of bands that were on it. So it definitely started to feel like things were changing. I know when we look back at it now, it's like, Oh, Nirvana happened and everything changed. But I think there's actually some evidence that things were changing even before that. Oh yeah. The, the impact of guns and roses uh, appetite for destruction, just their attitude that really kind of changed things with hair metal. Suddenly the idea of just, having the crossover ballad and just being cute and all that. But but they were nice guys. Well, Guns N' Roses comes along and they're they're <laughs> they're kind of the the bad guy, but you still like them and suddenly it had the, and it, in a way this is all just rock critic talk, but it, in a way it helped prime an audience that was ready for Nirvana and Pearl Jam, but they didn't know that just yet. And I don't think uh really you know, Warrant or Winger could have really anticipated that, but you know that that's that's the way it goes. I mean, I still remember thinking like Guns and Roses as an elementary kid, <laughs> elementary school kid. I was like, man, Guns and Roses—they're tougher and cooler than Bon Jovi. <laughs> so it was Operation Rock and Roll was Dangerous Toys, Motorhead, Alice Cooper, and Judas Priest, and Metal Church, and Metal Church. Yes. Hmm. And that didn't do well in 1991. Uh, I'm pretty sure it, got, it didn't. They didn't make the. They like canceled it halfway through. A lot of the information on the internet is not in English. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, was it a European tour? No, it was an American tour. But I don't remember I think... it. And if I don't remember it, I'm the guy who should. So something obviously went very, very bad. Oh. Okay. So I got some dates here. The one that people like to talk about from that era was the Clash of the Titans tour, where it was Anthrax. Was was Slayer on it? I know Megadeth was on it. Yeah, it was Anthrax, Slayer, Megadeth, three of the big four bands, and some new dudes had some song on the radio called Atlas in Chains or something (laughs) that nobody wanted to see at the time. And uh, a year later, uh, tables had turned in their favor, mildly. Yeah, Yeah, let's talk about 1991. Because that's the year that everybody points to as being the, you know, that's the Nirvana year. But if you look at, there's like a six-week span in August and September. August 12th, Metallica's Black Album was released, which is arguably the most successful rock or metal album of the entire decade. September now, for 7th. me as a thrash fan, something, it took me years. I'm still kind of as if I'm processing this via psychotherapy, I'm still consciously processing what Metallica's Black Album did to me as a music fan at the time. 
because it was such a tremendous disappointment for me as somebody who ate, ate and drank and slept Metallica and worshipped them as gods. Them pulling such a different stylistic right turn, um, it disappointed me so badly I couldn't come to terms with it. And it really sort of started shoving me away from metal. And then when Megadeth later chased them right over the cliff, trying to do not what Megadeth was good at, but trying to do a version of what Metallica was doing, it really, uh, it hurt. And it messed me up for a long, long time. Well, have you gone to any sort of like professional psychologist about... (laughs) about metallica it sounds like they have no i'm still every now and then i'll I'll do a podcast about it uh so this is uh it's really helping thanks for sharing well we're glad we're glad but uh you know if you follow me on twitter every now and then out and out of apparently nowhere somebody will mention the black album and i'll go into a uh you know a day-long rant about it i thought that was more load but apparently uh wow i didn't realize there was uh that level of uh disappointment with with the black let's album. put it this way guys i didn't hear anything about disappointment when the black album came out but then again i was living in the suburbs of houston and didn't really know many metal fans and the metal fans that i knew they were all in with metallica and more people got into it and you're talking to one of them i bet I you mean, if there was I, twitter back then you would have heard i bet there would have been a, a yeah yeah but let's also stress that by 91, by the end of 91, and keep in mind, this happened at the end of 91. Um, you had Whitney Houston, Mariah Carey, uh, Michael Jackson. They were all much bigger than anything going on uh, on the pop charts with uh, metal and rock. And so, but also by that time, hadn't Cowboys from Hell come out? Am I right? Or was that yeah. 91? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So here yeah, is this yeah. record... Because here was this record by a band that started in a part of the DFW area. Uh, it's it's a subsect of Arlington called Pantigo. Arlington, you now know, is where the Dallas Cowboys play. But in Pantigo, that's where Pantera had begun. And they had been around since all throughout the 80s. And you want to listen to some really interesting stuff is listen to the hair metal stuff that, did, that they did with Terry Glaze on vocals. And then they later got Phil Anselmo. And they cut one record with him, and then they side with Atco, and then they put out Cowboys from Hell. And that began a very interesting, like, their own path throughout the entire decade um, that ended so sadly. (laughs) And I'm talking before Dimebag was killed. Um, and, And so it was just like Pantera was doing stuff that was cool that, that just bridged rock, hard rock fans, metal fans, you know, people that like ZZ Top. They were into Pantera. That was kind of a quiet build. And, and the thing was is that there were a lot of quiet builds throughout the 90s that you saw. I mean, hell, even Typo Negative had a platinum record with Bloody Kisses in, in the early yeah. 90s. Yeah, you know, commercially, though, you know, in my memory, I think Pantera and Typo Negative kind of kept it alive through the 90s. You know, 
if not, certainly not single-handedly, but they were the commercial standard bearers of metal. You know, I yeah. think through the 80s, what allowed us thrash guys and us metal people to wave as a flag of superiority was technicality. We could say, oh, well, these guys are real musicians. Listen to Metallica, man. Listen to Slayer. These guys can play, not like that crap on the radio. And over the 90s, that, not over, but it kind of peaked in 90 with uh, Rust in Peace. And after that, the, the leading thrash bands did not become more intricate. So from that point, the story of metal in the 90s was more simplification as it evolved into what they would call groove metal. Uh, yeah. Some people called Pantera that. I don't think they ever used that term in their life. But 90s metal was certainly the idea of or the process of becoming more simple, more groove, and less intricate, which takes us back to your point about Pantera. Sorry. Yeah, no, I mean, and it, and it was just like all these bands were having to do like the simpler stuff. I mean, didn't Testament have kind of like a ballad by like 94? I mean, we're talking Testament. Yeah, yeah Testament made a, that, a run at trying to be a, a major label band and uh, yeah, that didn't work out. Well, let's not forget. But I felt like, all, I felt like a lot of the uh, thrash bands did that though, right? I mean, if you consider Metallica part of that group, Metallica. The ones that were on the big labels, but then you had Cannibal Corpse putting out stuff that even by today's standards, people would find tasteless. But they were going so far extreme with Craig Barnes, or Chris Barnes, excuse me, on lead vocals. And, <laughs> I mean, they were so much more than just they had a cameo in an Ace Ventura movie. In, in the early 90s, they were putting out some really fucked up stuff, but that was on Metal Blade. And that was still kind of like, oh, well, nobody cares about that because they ain't selling records. And it's like, well, you know, they were selling records and they were building an audience. While you have, uh, you know, Metallica really changed the game on people. Because I think by that point, you know, playing thrash metal, uh, there's only so many ways you can play a fast beat. And you can only play like, like that. But, you know, by 95, At The Gates completely reinvented it. But, you know, let's not get ahead of ourselves. But so it's like things were brewing, but got to stress. And you actually, the AV Club just recently posted uh, the weekend, the year in rock from 1991 and how it's like, you know, oh, ticket sales are so down and in terms of people going to concerts and record sales are low but there's this little band called nirvana that's no, they put out a good record this year and it, you can't help but notice the cyclical nature about the music world and when it comes to metal things were changing and i often like to say that nirvana was like the policeman that showed up to the party and everybody slowly walked out um because by the mid-90s, you had bands that were having to cut, not just Metallica, but they were having to cut their hair and fit in with this grunge kind of thing and grunge aesthetic sound and all that. And so, I mean, 1991 definitely changed things, but not overnight. It's very easy to say everything changed in 91. It's like, well, it just slowly changed. Yeah, and that's a good point because in addition to Nevermind, and I mentioned that like six-week period, where you have the Black Album in August, then mid-September, Use Your Illusion 1 and 2, and then end of September, Nevermind. I mean, those are pretty much some of the biggest... Uh, Use Your Illusion sold, I think, I think they're like 
combined like 30 million between those two albums black album sold I don't, ridiculous amount never mind obviously sold ridiculous amount but all of those albums not only were they huge they existed for years in the top in the billboard chart metallica toured yeah. on the black album for three years use your illusion had singles coming out for four years after that never mind was huge for three years after that I don't know if I've told this story on a previous podcast or not. I've told it a million times, though. Um, in a one-week span, I saw Brett Michaels headline the Newport Music Hall in Columbus, which is an 1,800-seat venue, and there's probably 800 people there. And then uh, there was a Tuesday night, and a Thursday night, I saw Nirvana play at Stashes, which was like a 200-seat venue, and it was sold out. Chip? Chip, you still there? That was a great story to be interrupted. <laughs> uh, Chip. Chip. Come on. What happened? <laughs> Who's the show? I know about the Stasha show because I've heard other people who went, you know, that was, it was 200 people and uh, 500 people claimed to have gone to that show. <laughs> about 5,000. Yeah. Chip. Well, Nirvana cliffhanger story. Oh. Will they make it? <laughs> Well, this up-and-coming young group of rock and rollers. Oh, oh Internet. Oh, man. Hate you, Internet. Um, so after Nirvana, the way I saw it, a lot of people wanted to get in the game that hadn't necessarily been playing guitar for years and years and years. And the younger metal fans didn't necessarily want to be Yngwie Malmsteen anymore. They wanted to do something and do it now. So again, you know, I look at the, the story of heavy music over the 90s being simplification. And gradually, hip-hop beats are what replaced, uh, you know, really intricate leads. Well, I, I know I was, I was in a band, you know, whatever, a high school band at the time. And, you know, I grew up listening to all the guitar gods. Well, and I, but I play drums, you know, and, and, and all the crazy drummers, you know, from the 80s and 70s and whatnot. You know, being 16 years old or whatever, 18 years old, I couldn't play like that. So we would play like, you know, Helmet. <laughs> you know, that was a, it was already starting to become, you know, bands like that were, or Ministry or things that like we kind of liked or want somebody in the band really liked and the rest of us be like, oh, that's kind of cool. Okay, well, the good thing is we can actually play it. So let's play it. I can't play the new Yingwei Malmsteen song, but I can play this. So Yeah, the 90s was a wonderful time for heavy major label music that was not metal. You know, bands like Helmet, uh, mm-hmm. bands like Korn, bands like Limp Bizkit, Nine Inch Nails, Marilyn Manson, you know, a lot of stuff that was not overtly long hair traditional metal, but was tremendous. You know, even things like Prodigy. Uh, Ronnie size to a degree, some of the more electronic music, Rage Against the Machine. Mm-hmm. You know, I think some of the best heavy stuff that happened over the 90s, and that's certainly the path that I went down. Uh, you know, I got disillusioned with metal, got a little bit bored. I was a fan of hip hop, so I followed it down into alternative and I followed it down into uh, rap metal and all that kind of stuff. Chip, are you back? It wouldn't be a Sunday night without me losing my internet connection. Chip, we we are <laughs> waiting on your cliffhanger story of you went to the Newport on. Or, Chip, or, what or, happened or to this Nirvana But yeah, yeah. So, so like, all within a week, like within three days, I went from uh, my past to my future. And as cliche as it is, and I, 
I've said this a million times, but like that Nirvana show changed my life. Uh, the Brett Michaels show was was kind of sad. It was oh. just Brett Michael. I mean, was he still a part of Poison? And was C.C. DeVille still, still in the band? No, so it was, it was a Brett Michael solo tour. It was a small handful of dates. He was touring, actually. Do you guys remember the Fallen Angel video? Oh, yeah. That, you know, the, the girl that gets on the bus and kind of kind of mimics the, um, I don't know which came first, a Welcome to the Jungle or Fallen Angel, but kind of the same idea, right? Somebody gets on a bus and moves to L.A. and Right. But, uh... The girl oh, in the video was uh, uh, Welcome to the Jungle was first. Okay. The, the, the girl in the video was uh, Brett Michaels' girlfriend, and she he helped her write an album, put out an album. And then, you know, I don't know if I realized this at the time, and, and maybe it's not true, but I think that the tour was him helping her out and getting her music out there, that he was like, hey, I'm going to go out on a solo tour. You can open up for me. And so he used, uh, like, it was the same band that backed both of them. Um, and she opened the tour, so it, it was. I'm sure it was. A, it was an attempt to to satisfy his girlfriend. Yuck! That but yeah, but, I mean, but that's how I saw music change within three days. I mean, I also saw. We were talking about Alice in Chains earlier. I saw Alice in Chains open for Extreme at the Akron Agora. Wow! wow. Nice. Get I saw them open for Van Halen. So, <laughs> yeah. And I, I'm, a, I'm the guy that always stood behind the Akron Agora trying to get uh, bands to take pictures and sign autographs. And I remember I remember when Alice in Chains walked out, I was afraid of them. And uh, so I didn't even approach them. Um, I did get my picture with, with uh, Extreme and, and got it printed in Metal Edge magazine. So my first time is in print. It, is this post more than words? Uh, it, was on, it was on a tour, yeah. 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 Wow. What a weird combination. <laughs> yes. Hey, hey, Chip, I just wanted to ask, like, tell us in general, what was it like to see Nirvana at a record store in 91? Well, it, was, it wasn't a record store. It was a, it was a small club. Um, oh, it was a small club. Okay, okay. Because, like, there yeah, is some footage of them, I think, when Jason Everman was still in the band on the Win the Lights, uh, with, with the Lights Out DVD, where they are they're playing a record store, and it is unbelievable the intensity that they have. Um, and, you know, still the Bleach tour, but, you know, you got to see them with the Nevermind uh, tour, but, you know, yeah. tell us what it was yeah. like to see that firsthand. Well, uh, like I, um, I already said, I was a huge hair metal fan, and so it was so different than everything I had listened to. But even by that point, I was starting to listen to the Ramones and like earlier Chili Peppers and Fishbone and stuff that wasn't like hair metal. Um, so it wasn't like Nirvana was something completely foreign to me, but uh, it was insane. I mean, you know, you never saw stage diving at a hair metal show. You never saw mosh pits at a, at a hair metal show. Uh, it was all about the the... The lipstick and leather, but uh, seeing Nirvana just uh, just plug away and, and play through songs with, with without all the gimmicks and stuff. I mean, it was amazing. It like I said, it, it honestly changed my life. Awesome. And I lost an Oakland Ace hat in the pit, and I never found it. And I'm so sad. <laughs> Small price to pay. Yeah. Yes. So the other thing uh, I want to mention that happened in '91, which was big for me. I don't know if. if anybody else was <clears throat> into these bands or not, but was the bring the noise with public enemy and anthrax um, uh-huh. that happened in 91. And that's how I actually discovered both those bands. And I ended up buying the public enemy album instead of the anthrax uh, release at that time. 
And probably not a bad move. Yeah, and I've still Apocalypse ninety one is still one of my favorite albums of all time probably yeah absolutely one of the the many pinnacles of their career it seemed like an odd pairing but it's like if you talk to people in anthrax or you talk to people in or in quicksand it's like or biohazard it's like you know you spent you you're coming from the underground and that included hip-hop as well as metal and punk and so it's like they're all friends so why don't we collaborate and oh yeah, a few years prior, Aerosmith and Run DMC collaborated. But you were starting to hear more and more rock music in hip hop. I mean, Beastie Boys, Public Enemy, and so I mean, like seeing the Bring the Noise video. I mean, as a kid, I thought, man, that's awesome, and it's it's just it all made sense to me. <laughs> and it was just loud and noisy, and hey, they're skateboarding in it, so I was all about that. You know, you have the next year is the first Rage Against the Machine release, 1992. Yeah. And then you have Body Count, which is Ice-T fronting a punk band. It's a hardcore, it's a a hardcore, hardcore, band. hardcore band. And Yeah. yeah you know, and, prior to that point, you know, listening to those different types of music was relatively cutting edge. I mean, in, in middle America, you did not listen to rap and metal i mean you know obviously in new york where it came from, there's a lot more uh overlap but you know one of the interesting things in that early 90s was that people stopped to let go of that notion that music was an either or proposition and you could like it all and yeah. it seems like that gets ascribed to alternative music breaking through but i think what we're really focusing on here is that it was happening already it was already yeah. people starting yeah. to splinter off into subgenres, and you know, Anthrax and Public Enemy had a that was a video that was constantly played on MTV in 1991. Mm-hmm. And that happened before Nirvana. So yeah, well, it was a year, it was a year after Faith, Faith No More's Epic, which kind of right. paved the way for that to happen, right? When these yeah. these domino pieces start to fall one at a time, like. Uh, I remember Jane's Addiction was really important just because they got a lot of sort of my friends who were into the, you know, the L.A. metal stuff. They were an L.A. rock band that could be heavy at times and could appeal to those people. So they were very much a gateway in terms of um, a lot of those fans starting to like open their their minds a little bit and broadening their spectrum of music. Yeah, yeah, Jane's Addiction brings up. Uh, the you know just how thoroughly heroin devastated '90s rock, you know, even more so than we realized at the time. I mean, Jane's Addiction should have been a, a leading rock force for the decade. I mean, for my money, they're up there with yes. Zeppelin. They're up there with the Doors, but they just developed the bad habits and imploded right when they should have been going to a god level. Uh, yeah, heroin also sent Guns and Roses. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it it was definitely for me as a kid, 
I I would laugh at all those anti-drug PSAs. I mean, I've all, I was always like a goody two shoes, but I kept seeing drugs fuck up my favorite bands. So I was like, yeah, I'm never going to touch that stuff. Um, but in the case of Jane's Addiction, I mean, this is a band that. I have uh, infamously wrote in a review when they played Dallas a few years ago. I was like, I think I was just a little too, uh, I was just a couple years too young to understand how important Jane's Addiction was in its day. But but over time, I've realized it. I mean, the way that Perry Farrell sings is not like how, you know, uh, Lion or Extreme or Winger sounds. Um but it, it definitely had this big impact. And, you know, it, there was also this idea of alternative rock, you know, really rocking like a hard rock band. And we, gef- we definitely saw that whether we're talking about Dane's Addiction or Alice in Chains. It was, it was all kind of like this, this stuff is brewing. It was not a black and white sort of thing. It, it wasn't all just the rip roar and solos, but that was very, very popular. Uh, but the thing was that by my 91, 92, things were, people were really tired of all the excesses of the 80s, just the mentality of 80s excess. People weren't into that anymore. And, you know, Nirvana, Pearl Jam, they, they seemingly cut through all the bullshit. And the, people have claimed that, oh, nobody liked to play guitar solos after that. And I'm like, that's funny. Um, have you listened to the last three minutes of Pearl Jam's Alive? Non-stop guitar solos and not easy guitar solos. Very difficult to play guitar solos. Um, but, yeah, there was, there was this kind of punk mentality that came with it. But, I mean, for crying out loud, Mike McCready came from a hair metal band before he joined Pearl Jam. Um, and so it was, there are lots of variables going on. And, uh, it, and there are sign, I think the, the big signposts are when... The Black Album comes out. Nevermind comes out. Use Your Illusion comes out. Uh, Rage Against the Machines' first album comes out. And then in a couple of years from that, uh, it was a very slow build, but it had a huge burn by, it had a huge impact by the late 90s. But Korn's first album in 94, which I still stand behind. Unfortunately, Limp Biscuit made it okay for douchebags and bros to like it. And suddenly a really cool idea just went, eh. so that's my little rant. Well, we're going to get to 1994 because that's an important year. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, I'm but, just saying is that that always building towards that. But yeah, I think yeah. I think uh, yeah. what you have in the wake of Nirvana, and you, you mentioned people being tired of this, is that aside from Guns N' Roses and Metallica, which were off-selling, you know, tens of millions of records and and touring nonstop, and even together they were touring, is that all these other bands start falling apart. You know, Vince Neil leaves Motley Crue in 92. Bruce Dickinson leaves Iron Maiden in 93. Rob Halford leaves Judas Priest in 93. A lot of Rat, you know, Poison, all these other bands, they just go dormant. Either they, you know, break up or they lead singer goes off and does a solo record. And then some of those bands put together albums towards the end of the decade. But a lot of those sunset, glam, metal, whatever you want to call them, hair bands, they just sort of died off on their own. And some of them tried to evolve. Faster Pussycat, for yeah. example, is one that tried to do sort of a Marilyn Manson thing by the mid-decade. Didn't go well. Um, yeah, yeah but I think that was, the biggest, that was the biggest mistake those bands made, though, in retrospect. I, I've been thinking about this, getting ready for this podcast, is 
they tried to evolve with a sound that, I mean, for better or worse, and, and I know people by the early to mid-90s were, were tired of it, but all those bands tried to evolve, and they got away from what they knew about singing, about partying. And I think most music fans saw right through that. Like, I don't if Poison had put out a Talk Dirty to Me in, like, 1995, maybe it wouldn't have been the right place for it, but... But at least they wouldn't have felt like they were they were trying to catch up to the trends, if that makes sense. Yeah. Well, right. I was, I was say, just well, going to say Poison had a big hit with the song that was kind of a gospel song, you know? I mean, for crying out yeah. loud, Stan yes. has a gospel choir. Stand. It's a great, great chorus. Yeah. But, you know, yeah. it, it's not the it's not the something to believe in or unskinny bop or uh, fallen angel poison that, that you'd know. So, you yeah. know. Well, so there was a there, I mean there was a shift between all these bands that were pop uh going serious and all these bands that were serious trying to go pop, right? Like this is when Megadeth does Countdown to Extinction. They you know, they finally turn the corner and say, "All right, we've done the ultimate we thrash talk album. about Megadeth in the 90s. Can we just skip that?" Metallica <laughs> <laughs> makes the Black Album. <laughs> Testament doesn't valid like all these bands that spent the 80s basically in vans you know paying their dues and building these underground followings they all sort of take a pivot to being commercial and all the commercial bands take a pivot to trying to be taken more seriously it was a you know the worst was, and I, I think it was uh i think it was late 80s so not in our 90s but not even know, do, you, do you pronounce it celtic frost or celtic frost i say Celtic. i'm, I'm a celtic ways. guy but I mean, people. Uh, Celtic is certainly more common than Celtic. Because that night, do you guys remember that 1988 record that Cold Lake? Now I've, I'm in a minority opinion on this, but Cold Lake is a tremendous, tremendous, wonderful album. Now it's not no, I, 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 Celtic Frost at all, but it is their yeah, girls, girls, girls. Uh, I totally, 100 percent agree. But that that's it was because they went that direction that got me into them. If you if you don't know what I'm talking yeah. about, look up the uh, video. Look up the video for Cherry Orchard sometime. It's uh, yeah. And during that one, like, if you don't know the story, Celtic Frost, who were these you know the progenitors of black metal, unquestionable, unimpeachable force and thrash, progressive, credible, dark, heavy, satanic metal. Uh, and, 88 put out inexplicably at the time put out an album that was very much a hair metal album and as i said it's the girls 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 moment i mean it would sound tremendous in a strip club i've had a professional stripper back me up on this he's told me yeah that that would work, that would work. <laughs> but you know it's it kind of speaks to the same point of how metallica was to me and people of my ilk a disappointment you know very good album you can't say the black album is not good well i can but um you can't seriously argue that it's not good uh Kellogg frost you can maybe make the argument that it's not good but it's simply not what you want from those bands and uh, when a band isn't doing what you want anymore maybe artistically that's pure but uh, if they're not doing what you want that's not making you happy even yeah, uh, just you know, Exodus find somebody else commercial that you get into. Yeah, I mean, like Megadeth. That I remember that having such a good impact on kids my age that it, people were getting into the idea of playing much more complicated stuff than just four four, uh, 
you know, smells like teen spirit or in bloom. I mean, it's like, that's what got their hands on a guitar. But by the time that you got to like train the consequences, it was like, mm, all right. And you know, you can show off to people about, Oh, I know how to play train of consequences, but I can also understand in retrospect about like, how this mentality was like, you know, metal bands didn't have to be grunge, but they were, but there was such a market potential that they had to, they were forced to do that kind of stuff. And I think the, a lot of the metal that has been praised in, in the last 20 years, now 30 years, 20, 30 years, is the stuff that wasn't being pressured to fit in with the trends. Metal has always been an underground kind of thing, underground kind of mentality. So in the 90s, you had this weird push and pull of, well, do you have a single? And it's like, there are no fucking singles. Like, can you name a... Uh, other than their version of Inagata Devita, can you name a Slayer song that's like, oh, that's a radio single? <laughs> no. No, and, and I think it was perfectly encapsulated on Beavis and Butthead that they, when they were making commentary on hair metal bands that were trying to be cool in the 90s, they saw right through it, and, um, you know... I was un I understood why they made fun of Winger at the time. I think Kip Winger is actually a very very exceptional uh, singer, songwriter, musician. You know, he's much more of prog and classical, but he also got pulled into hey, write a song like Seventeen or Down Incognito, and it's it's just kind of like I look at my teenage self and I can understand why I rejected that kind of stuff. But now as a 37-year-old, I'm like, yeah, just let, let everything be. But in the 90s, it was like, no, you have to be this certain way. And that includes <laughs> a metal band, yeah. which, which I think is pretty unfair. It was definitely more, uh, I don't know, I, this probably not the right way to say it, like life and death. Like, you got to be on a side, pick a side, one way or the other. You know, this band sucks. This yeah. band's great. None of these bands toured together. Now they all play Brocklahoma. Yeah, yeah. So let me ask you guys about, there's an anomaly that I want to bring up. As we mentioned about, you know, sort of the people getting burnt out on the hair metal bands. And then I mentioned about bands like Judas Priest and Iron Maiden, you know, losing their frontmen. And the anomaly is Ozzy Osbourne in that Ozzy <laughs> had a much more successful 90s than he did 80s. The first album that he released in the 90s, which was uh, No More Tears, sold more than the previous two albums that he had put out in the 80s. And then the Ozzy... Yeah, I mean, before I, I said that uh, uh, Tempo and Pantera had kind of carried the banner, but obviously you have Metallica, and Ozzy did far more than his share. I mean, Ozzy's career is miraculous that he's been able to stay relevant and consequential, consequential as long as he has, which brings us to your point. And he also founded the OzFest tour, which is really one of the first times in... Kept things alive. Well, and he, it started to create a brand for Ozzy. It became yeah. more than just being a musician and putting out albums. It became this entire, like, entertainment empire, which would then turn into the Osbournes TV show. And, you know, Ozzy became a, a whole commodity. And, and almost in the way that, like, well, an athlete, you know, is branded... Like a Michael Jordan. So, yeah, household name. Yeah. So I saw Ozzy in 92, and it was his first retirement tour. Called He called it No More Tours. It was this, <laughs> He did a club tour after the No You're More Tears tour. Law. 
he did a club tour after the uh or sorry a theater tour after the no more tears tour that and that uh, just grooves open yep and he was telling everybody at that time all the press that this was his last tour he was saying goodbye so yeah. <laughs> yeah but when you put out a record like no more tears that is just so many great songs came from that like the title track mama i'm coming home you took me I mean, that, that was all over Headbangers Ball. I mean, and Headbangers Ball was the center of my universe for Saturday nights. I wasn't going out well, and partying. We, I was staying of, in you know, and watching. Looking, looking back, it, it's, you know, as, as I kind of alluded to before, it's interesting to see that so many things were clearly the evolution of classic rock. I mean, Black Sabbath very much lived on the radio through the 70s and through the 80s. I mean, I saw Sabbath in 87... I think on the uh, the Seven Star Tour, and uh, there was a point when the band played the current single. Um, I forget what it's called. Don't leave me standing here is the chorus, and I didn't even realize that was a Sabbath song at the time. Like, oh, Sabbath played this song? I didn't know. Uh, but um, my point is that so many so many of the bands that were popular in the '90s, you know, we were calling them metal and we were calling them grunge. But I mean, Ozzy was there at the beginning of the classic rock days, and so he became, you know, the, the songs like Mom, I'm Coming Home that live on the radio now. Uh, Slaughter, very classic rock. Um, you know, even a lot of the grunge bands, Jason Pettigrew from Alternative Press, the uh, scholarly editor there, you know, he looked at Pearl Jam and said, this is bad company. You're not fooling me. This isn't punk-infused anything. <laughs> And he's not wrong. So does Ozzy have it is is the secret to the comeback um Zach Wild? It's sharing. Big time. Come on. Uh it yeah. helps. Because yeah. nobody else was doing it. You know, again, classic rock is, is classic. It always works, and Ozzy was doing something that not a lot of people were doing at the time. Yeah, I mean, classic rock radio has has not been very significantly updated since '89, and those those couple years, '89, '90, um, a small handful of material from them has leaked onto uh, the the airwaves and stayed there. But he was doing something that not a lot of people were doing at the time. Well, I, just I think remember- there's something to the fact that Sabbath was the Sabbath is the common band between the new, like the basically all the grunge bands right the ones that were at least were heavier uh the melvins and even soundgarden and all those bands all like sabbath and all the metal bands like sabbath so they were the sort of the meeting ground and at that in the 90s the actual band black sabbath were kind of a mess so if you you know the 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 face of future round table black sabbath was basically Mm -hmm. was basically ozzy so um I think there's something to that as well. Like he, 
he was credible. He was able to be credible, I think, to uh, to everybody. Yeah, and you know, Ozzy, uh, he kept himself afloat in the the '90s, and I don't mean this cynically. I mean, he finally felt that he was distanced enough from Randy Rhodes that he could release the live Randy Rhodes album without crashly exploiting it. So when that finally came out, you know, we had wanted that for years and years and years. Um, so that that didn't no small part to keep him relevant and to keep the fans happy in those days. So as you yeah, said, Sabbath about- was just kind. Of- whatever at that point but ozzy was thoroughly ozzy through the 90s yeah ozzy yeah. never he might have done a theater tour but uh, you were talking about listening to dehumanizer by black sabbath in preparation mm-hmm. for this and um yeah this again might be a little bit before your time maybe uh i think i saw them at they played they were another band that played at the they played at the newport in like 92 they were supposed to play uh, for the non-Columbus people, this place called the Betts Memorial, which is probably, I don't know, you guys, 4,000, 5,000, 8,000, I, I don't know what, what that holds, but they didn't sell tickets. Like, they announced the day before the show that they were moving it to a special club, small, intimate appearance by Black Sabbath, so you better go <laughs> check them out. Right. And the reality is they did not sell enough, and it was, it was, it was the Dehumanizer reunion tour, and uh, yeah. they didn't sell enough tickets. I guess yep. you could say and that was dehumanizing. A, yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but that was Dead the joke. lineup. Of, yeah. But that, that was the lineup of Sabbath that didn't unify these people, right? I mean, I love right. that era of Sabbath, but in the '90s, that wasn't whatever. That's not what Kim Thale was referencing. He's referencing, Correct. you know, the early Ozzy era. So yeah, great. They get back together with Ronnie. I think that album's actually underrated, but at the time, it was like whoa you know <laughs> this is not yeah. this is not the most relevant thing in the world oh yeah i mean i remember this i think by 95 we <laughs> gotta mention cmc international the record label that seemed to sign every major <laughs> hair oh, metal yeah. band that was trying to stay afloat in the 90s and one of them was Dawkins. and i remember seeing in guitar world this advertisement that was like they're playing all these sold out shows and i said it to a friend of mine who's like five years older than me and he was like yeah but did you see the venues that they're playing they're all playing a lot of clubs i was like oh well hey it's the show's still selling out but i it, it was it was definitely making that kind of impact where you know Dawkins was used to playing like huge arenas now they're having to play clubs and um but thankfully there was stuff still going on. I mean, yeah, I rejected a lot of that stuff because, like, I was still trying to form my identity. I couldn't relate to Dawkins as much as I could to Nirvana. Now, that said, I, I distinctly remember in 1994 hearing Just Got Lucky by Dawkins from my older friend and thought that song kicked ass. Great, great little, you know, catchy little song. But... Uh, uh, but it was not something I would talk about with my friends. They were they were much more about Alice in Chains and Soundgarden. I mean, it was definitely what the Beavis and Butthead world was, uh, you know, it, what it was showing. That's what it was like in the 90s to be a teenager. Yeah. And, um, yeah. I mean, it, it was just kind of like I wasn't going to go see Dawkins. I mean, it was just like the Dawkins was the 80s. And, and, and I think every young teenager out there they need their own bands 
Uh, because, you know, you, you can be a well-meaning parent. And it's like, here, here's the music I liked as a teenager, teenager. And chances are that teenager will be like, that's nice, but I want to listen to my own music. And so I yeah, firmly I mean, accept that if I ever have, part if I ever music, have children, have they will music. not really understand great. Yeah. They will, they will more, you know, they'll be going for the pierce the veil, not the at the gates. I get it. Okay. <laughs> oh, you know, something that Chip mentioned earlier that I, I wanted to circle back on real quick. He mentioned about if Poison had put out an album in 95, put out Talk Dirty to Me Part 2, you know, would, they, would that still be the, you know, relevant? And it, it occurred to me that, you know, for people who were listening to that in, what was it, 1988 or 89, that was like essentially like the party music, you know, if you were like 17 yeah. or 18. Well, for the 17 or 18 year old in 1995, party music wouldn't even be heavy metal. It'd be hip hop. It would be. Yeah. You know, oh, yeah. So pop, the punk. Entire, pop punk. Yeah. It'd be Green Day or The Offspring. Yeah. You know, it wouldn't even yeah. metal wouldn't even factor into the equation. When it talks, when you talk about what what the party music would be, maybe I actually, I guess I remember like Weezer's Blue album being huge. You'd hear that at parties like in college or something like that. That, that, that was an easy. Yeah, I mean, one to as as on. a kid, you need the new hotness and whatever that might be. You know that that changes. So if it's not the new hotness, you don't want to deal with it. Nor should you. Mid decade, we get to the ninety four ninety five. This is where things start to get interesting in terms of metal continuing to evolve into even things that aren't even metal. You have Korn, Marilyn Manson, their two debut albums come out in 94. You have Nine Inch Nails, The Downward Spiral, which you could argue is heavier than a lot of metal at the time. In 95, the Deftones released their debut album. And 95 is also the year that Slipknot forms. So I've... I'll be completely honest. I don't think I've ever listened to that first Marilyn Manson album. I've listened to like Mechanical Animals and um, Antichrist Superstar and other stuff. But are any, any of you guys familiar with that first Marilyn Manson record? I just remember the T-shirts. I, I, don't, I don't know it as, as well, but there's some tremendous stuff on it. Okay. Uh, yeah, I remember it being big. I, I saw. Him. Is that the co- one that has the cover of Sweet Dreams? Now? Right. Yeah, that's think- the one that they broke through with. Okay. This is in retrospect, but uh, at that point, they were much more a, a cult, alternative, gothy kind of thing. Nobody was looking to them for metal, and they brought it, and people responded to it. But you know, it, it very much did not come from that direction, even though Minson had a background in that thing. And then also in 94, yeah. it would be remiss if I didn't mention. So that's the year. So you get Melvin Stoner Witch. You get... Uh, the third Biohazard record, which I think is maybe when I first heard them was on that record. You're getting metal from all different directions, and I guess if you were a metal fan, you'd kind of be corrosion like, of conformity's deliverance. Yeah, you get King's X Dogman. You got uh, Super Unknown by Soundgarden, which has less metal influence than the previous couple of records. But it's there in, in some respects. Yeah, I mean, in some respects, they go full blown classic rock in that. Right. And so, with, uh, like Black Crew Hole Sun, their I mean, first obviously something like King Stan is a little bit more. Oh, the Karabi record. When is that, Jay? Is that ninety five? That was ninety four ish. Or ninety four. It's ninety four. Okay. Yep. Okay. 
not forget you mentioned some bands who replaced singers. You forgot one. Anthrax replaced Joey Belladonna with uh, John Bush around yes. this time, which, I mean, that is a dramatic. That I is have... the one where it actually worked. <laughs> like, yeah. I think all these other it's ones, they were to... potentially unwise, but that one actually worked. Yeah, yeah, Sound of White Noise, Stone Cold, underrated, John Bush. Yeah, Sound of White Noise, that to me, that's the anthrax I want to listen to. I have seen them with Joey Belladonna a couple of times. It's just kind of silly party metal to me. I mean, it's like, it's a madhouse, yeah! And like, you know, I, I remember the first time I saw them with Joey Belladonna back on vocals, and this was before Worship Music came out, they played only... And obviously, John Bush and Joey Belladonna, different vocal ranges. But it was cool that they played only, but they don't play anything from uh, the John Bush era. But, man, like, Sound of White Noise, top to bottom, is a great record. It is. And, uh, and that worked. Whereas compared to Motley Crue, I was like, is, is this really even the same yeah. band? Uh, I mean, like this, the lead up, I mean, there was so much buildup to Hooligans Holiday being released. And I was like... This this chorus isn't really all that great, you know. It's just kind. Of, but yeah, that I, is I remember a mystifying single. That that really is a perplexing. Yeah, well, it was it was a lot of thinking, and there's a lot of thinking if you're going to make a Bob Rock record. Just saying, um, but uh, I, I remember in reading in the dirt is like especially. I think it was Tommy Lee said that you know this was something that really excited them as far as trying a new style and everything but when john crabby's voice didn't go over so well and um it was kind of like oh shit well we got to try something else well hey industrial rock's kind of cool so let's do generation swine and then a couple records later they do well they did new tattoo and then they get um then they were back to their classic style because their classic style was in vain in vogue then but uh but like you know, that Motley Crue self-titled record is is just as DX said is just like, huh? <laughs> Jay, you want to step up For on that Motley one? Motley Crue band. <laughs> uh, I did a whole review of this, so I think my my take on that record is uh, is on the record, so to speak, from the standpoint that uh, it just sounded like four guys who spent a year in a practice space just playing. I think that's comes across when it came out. It may not have been what everybody wanted to hear. And I think that probably crushed them. Um, thus all of the, yeah, I mean, just logistically, I mean, it pretty much all these bands at some point, it, it, whether they would admit it or not, just ran out of ideas and had to do something. And that's always interesting mm -hmm. to me when bands reach that point that they're not divinely inspired anymore and they're not young and ideas are just coming to them and they don't have a lifetime of fandom or 20 years of fandom just coming out in a glorious first or second record. What to do then? You got to make a record. You don't have any ideas. So what comes out? And sometimes you make the left turn and it sounded white noise, which is great and triumphant. And sometimes it's... Oof, Sometimes you got Hooligan's Holiday. But you, you, Anthrax, mid to late 90s Anthrax, admittedly, I haven't listened to a whole lot or haven't listened to it in a long time, but like that Stomp 42 and um, Volume 8. Well, later albums real. didn't those, work so well. Yeah, those were, not, those were not great Anthrax records. 
Yeah, well, Anthrax is uh, my friend Greg Kroll, uh, you know, a guy whose opinion is is always a little bit more correct than mine. He he points out that Anthrax's identity was always malleable, shall we say. Yeah, they were always good. They were always toward the forefront, but they were never exactly leaders unless you want to talk about rap rock. So, I mean, Anthrax was always kind of catching up or, or adapting to the times, but generally not uh, banging something brand new and exciting onto the forge, you know? Yeah. yeah. I, I think, I think by, what, what, they, what they do now, the, the last two records, are very much a combination of the 90s stuff, Sound of White Noise, and the, the more thrash. I, I think they found a way to merge those two things together, and it actually works pretty damn well. Um, a record that came out in 95 that is a, an interesting combination of artists is the Down record. So yeah. Pepper Keenan, Phil yeah. Anselmo, some other That's folks. another one. In retrospect, clearly classic rock. If classic rock really didn't have its head lodged firmly up its, we'll say butt, I don't know what your profanity policy we is. We have no policy. If classic rock radio was not afraid to play something new that might interest somebody stone the crow should be on the radio three times a day at bare minimum but most uh, most stations won't do that now obviously it's metal but i mean look at what black sabbath sounded like when they came out uh so the down record very much an update the classic rock tradition just with some metal guys So I mentioned the Nine Inch Nails record, too, uh, Downward Spiral. DX, you had mentioned earlier about bands like Prodigy, and and, and I think in terms of, you know, where those bands come in, you know, not metal in the traditional sense, but in terms of the energy, in terms of the volume, in terms of, in some sense, the attitude they were definitely yeah the attitude just and the intent you know just they're going out to wreck stuff you know i mean a band called atari teenage riot uh was called i forget if it was their term or not but they were described as digital hardcore and yeah i i from that i spun that off into the term digital metal you know bands like prodigy and to a lesser degree nine inch nails just really heavy electronic uh ministry yeah, some of the best hair factory in the 90s again was very much electronic that had nothing to do with metal and guitars in the traditional sense but nine inch nails broken good gosh i mean that's heavy and like i it's hard for me to wrap my head around how heavy that is every time i go back to it i'm like wow so yeah absolutely that that metallic or that metallic imperative to go out and destroy things uh, very much in evidence with Nine Inch Nails. And I mean, to your point, what do you think made them good? You know, Nine Inch Nails, in a lot of ways, became, I, I think, almost like a traditional, if you look at Downward Spiral and then The Fragile that followed, you know, that those band, those albums have ballads <laughs> in a weird way with Hurt. And Trent Reznor has a pop sense of melody that a lot of industrial bands don't. 
Um, certainly, um, ministry doesn't have the same pop sensibility that Trent Reznor has. He has, you know, a way to take a song like um, like Closer, which is so inappropriate, but create a piece of music that builds. It has a chorus that it gets lodged in your your head that you're you're never going to forget that. Yeah, and and I to to kind of step aside for just a, a quick second. I mean, you mentioned Guns and Roses and Appetite for Destruction and that being a seminal moment of attitude for heavy and aggressive music. You know, the song It's So Easy. I mean, how even a band like Slayer and Metallica never picked up on the next step of where do you go from turn around or say woman, I I got a use for you. Where do you go from there? Nobody picked up on that until you get to the point of uh, Trent Reznor years later saying, I want to hump you like an animal, except he didn't say hump. You can say fuck. It's okay. We have no rules here. (laughs) Um, I mean, in some ways, it took a guy like Trent Reznor from outside the scene to even take that and say, yeah, I'll, I'll run with it. But I felt like we had so many bands. I mean, I was I started to just pull up all the bands that I that to me are taking the Nine Inch Nails thing and adding more guitars to be a little more rock friendly, which ultimately some of them end up sounding very metal-ish. So like Econoline Crush and Stabbing Westward and Gravity Kills and Fear Factory and Orgy and are all some. To me, uh, some combination of Nine Inch Nails times. Yeah, and now some, we start moving you know, into the metal new metal aesthetic. era. Right now, it's the new metal right. evolution, um, which I think it. And, and you sent me a good quote from the Aaron Burgess of uh, Aaron Burgess. Yeah, very sage metal guy. I mean, he, he's one of the guys that was absolutely instrumental in alternative press becoming the juggernaut that it is, but. He grew up very much and remains a metal guy, very credible. Do you have that in front of you? I do have it. I'm going to read this quote. He said, I think it's. I think it was Spin where I first saw the term labeled as new metal. At AP up to that point, we'd been going with new metal, N-E-W, as the catch-all for everything from corn to system of a down. I remember looking at that stupid little character, meaning the umlaut, and thinking, man, they nailed it. I was really bummed that we hadn't thought of it first because in getting to know a lot of these bands, I'd already come to believe that the everything that the umlaut signifies, the worst of them were just management-manufactured 80s sunset, sunset strip-style cheese balls updated with Adidas track suits and helmet riffs. In other words, there was a thin line between Motley Crue and Limp Bizkit, and that umlaut was it. <laughs> That, like, sort of, when I read that, I was like, oh, okay, that is, like, the cauterization of everything of that kind yeah. of been in my percolating my brain for 20 years. I think what happens is we sort of look back and look at it as one big thing, but there's a big difference between the new metal of corn and the new metal of Limp Bizkit are really quite a bit different in terms of their intent in terms of their approach, but they get lumped in as being almost like they're the same band in the simplification of, of nineties metal. Um, and I remember Limp Bizkit, like, didn't they have the scandal that like their first record they were getting, it was like a payola deal where radio stations were getting paid like a couple thousand dollars to push the first single, that faith cover. 
Yeah, do I have that right? Do you guys remember that? Yeah, yeah that, that was, was all like, well, it's like, oh, they do that the whole, I mean, they do it all across the, uh, I mean, it is a very common thing. It's just like Limp Bizkit was like, so what? Oh, yeah, we sold out. We sold every uh, seat in the house. And I was just like, God, you think these guys are dumb. I hate these guys already. <laughs> but the thing was, is it, you know, like, I firmly believe that Limp Bizkit has a lot of really good riffs. And then Fred Durst opens his mouth. And uh, it, it yeah, just yeah, got from to my such perspective, because like the truth out on the biscuit all the way up until Woodstock ninety nine. I mean the, the the second big album came out and everybody was into it and he was breaking big and people were getting behind them and they people in the press reviewers were starting to say semi positive things about Fred trying and Woodstock ninety nine came out and during their live set, they could have defused things a little bit, but they did. And everybody yeah. finally decided whether or not they were meatheads or artists. And at that moment, it was very much meatheads. Yeah. And people well, didn't like, in a position to back is, them, they, very much turned their back. And uh, they never recovered image-wise. But they were to your point. I mean, they had great riffs. It was catchy. They were not popular for no reason. Right. Yeah, I got well, I, I Korn um, had such... A great style, you know. Corn had just this amazing style where there were no guitar solos. They were more influenced by Mr. Boogle than they were Van Halen. Um, and you know, John Davis sang about some really fucked up shit on those first three records. I, the first two records are all, all about like him growing up and having daddy issues and drug issues and all that. And you know, the the interplay. Yeah, I between forget it. I forget where I read amazing. it. I think Ross Robinson, the producer, his take on it was that metal could be vulnerable. And with eighties metal, the idea was that or the, the general sensibility was indomitability and power. And uh, ninety metal nineties metal was vulnerability. But you know, Robinson's point was that just because you were metal or just because you were vulnerable didn't mean that you could not be metal. And just because you were vulnerable didn't mean that you could be aggressive. So that, I think, is the essential difference between 80s metal and 90s metal, vulnerability. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Yeah. And I mean, uh, Slayer, I, you know, I, certainly I, feel betrayed by institutions, but not in the way that Jonathan Davis, that was, you know, literally violated uh, different ways, was. Yeah. Yeah, because Slayer is putting um, out consistent stuff, you know? I would add uh, to your point, DX, that I hadn't thought about the vulnerability thing. That's a good way to phrase it. I had always phrased it as um, up until then, metal was about power, and then it turned into being more about anger. Um, and I usually view metal bands now, are they an angry metal band or are they like a power metal band? Um, yeah. But the vulnerability part was something I hadn't hadn't thought of. Yeah, anger is a gift, as Zach Dale Roche said. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, you had Slayer. They had a song about Jeffrey Dahmer on Divine Intervention. And uh, and, and I still remember seeing the Ditto Head video for the first time on, on Head and Bagger Ball. I was like, what the hell is this? I didn't know music could be played that fast. Um, <laughs> I even remember looking at the tablature of it. It was like, holy shit. Oh, one other band we got to mention that we haven't mentioned yet, Sepultura. Chaos AD, yes. Roots. Yeah, they very much expand uh, the, the movement from you know, what we thought of as 80s metal and what was happening after Thrash through the 90s and through the new metal era. 
Yeah. And, and for also, my money, yeah, yeah, Sepultura early on when they took off was the point that metal became 100% metal. You know, the classic thrash bands had a sort of rock and roll underpinning where even if you don't like Slayer and don't like Metallica and don't like Megadeth, a guy that came up in the 70s could look at them and say, well, that is rock and roll. It's too fast and whatever, but it's rock and roll. But Sepultura to me was the point, not the only one, but was kind of the defining line where now metal is pure metal. Yeah. Well, vocally, things change, right? I mean, it goes to goes from mostly melodic singers, like more of a classic rock orientation, maybe, you know, whether it be Ozzy or Rob Halford, there's some mix in there, in one way or the other. Um, but then it gets into more of like growling, you know, I don't know, you guys maybe can describe, but it was a pretty dramatic shift of like, okay, now most metal bands actually... Don't sound like Ozzy or Rob Alford. They sound like oh yeah. Uh, I, mean, I don't know Phil Anselmo. I don't know who would be the. You started hearing that. the word "cookie monster" be referred to the way that vocals were. Um, yeah. You had a band like Carcass. Um, you also had At the Gates. They weren't singing in a clear kind of way, but it sounded angry and sick as fuck. Uh, <laughs> and for teenagers. It was terrifying, but also cool. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and, and to also to help illustrate this shift in how metal was going in the mid-90s, let me just tell you about a little band I played in in that time, and it was we were called Public Abuse. And on our very first show, we covered Nirvana and the Smashing Pumpkins. At our last show, we opened with Cold Chambers loco and ended the set with fear factory's new breed that's how much things had changed in just two years for us as a band wow that i think that that that, that kind of sums it up doesn't it about like how metal was changing in like 95 96 97 mm -hmm. yeah absolutely were you playing school dances with the, the cold chamber and uh... no <laughs> uh, we we played a place called Beaver's Resort. It was like a, a family-friendly kind of, in a way, like a VFW hall. Yeah, but it, I mean, like, I mean, by that time, the first OzFest tape was out. And I believe the very first song that's on that tape is uh, Cold Chamber doing Loco. And my friends and my bandmates thought, Man, that's awesome. We gotta cover that song. And it was and it, we were all about like detuning like crazy. Like, hey, let's tune down to B. Or in the case of Fear Factory, <laughs> let's tune down to A. <laughs> How do you string stay on at that point? <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Do you guys remember uh remember the band Prong and Oh yeah. Uh, yeah. Boom. Yep. Boom. I, I remember I remember seeing them maybe 92 on Headbangers Ball and thinking like, wow, okay, this is different. This is this is where metal is going to go. And in some ways it kind of did. I guess I'm always a little perplexed that that band isn't more relevant now or referenced more. They, I don't know. They seem to be quite a bit ahead of their time and kind of important to some of the bands that came after. Yeah, they, you know, they, they very much were. You know, in some ways, the, I, I think the story of heavy music over the 90s is the rise of riffs that actually sound like the word riff and grunge. 
you know, a lot of songs that sound like grunge, 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 riff, riff. And the prong was was ahead of it. You know, they were just riff, 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 grunge. Which is not a bad thing, certainly. And they kind of had like a, I remember at least a couple of songs I saw at the time, Snap Your Finger, Snap Your Neck, had almost like a dance element to the drum approach. Like it wasn't, it was kind of. Yeah, I mean, if, the, if you would break, if you just what the elements are, I think you're you're going to come up with pretty much the same things that compose Ministry later on. Mm-hmm. Yep. You know, Prong was in Columbus a couple weeks ago. Yeah. Yeah. They they relaunched the band back in 2003, give or take. And the first album was mystifyingly terribly mixed, and it made such a bad impression on me. I just stopped following them. Apparently, they got better since, uh, but they're still around doing their thing. So we've gone through the mid-'90s, and then as the decade sort of gets closer to the end, you see bands. What's interesting is the the 80s hair bands sort of start making a, a, a second run at it, with um yeah you know vince neal goes back to motley Crue. gary sharon joins van halen for van halen 3 in 1998 you see uh you know poison puts out an album and i remember with jay uh when we first moved down here to columbus in 98 i think we went to see there was a a show it was like uh poison and cinderella and um, who else was on that bill, Jay? Um, I don't remember, but I do remember being like the, I think it was the first uh, nostalgia 80s shed tour that those bands started to do that have since become fairly yeah. successful. And that was, you know, but it was the first time where it kind of worked. It was 15,000 at Polaris Amphitheater, which no longer exists. Um, but it, I mean, the place was packed. It looked like it was 1988 instead of 1998 because everybody was dressed in their you know, acid wash jeans and uh, poofed up hair. And we were sort of like walking around like, oh, this is interesting. Like, it's like the 90s didn't happen for a lot of these people. They just were just hiding in the woodwork waiting for <laughs> Poison to come out and release a, a new record. And I kind of feel like that that, that that's it, it's a joke, but it's also kind of true. Like a bunch of people just stopped listening to music or they just kept listening to the same things. Maybe they bought the new Bon Jovi record when it came out. But a whole sector of people all of a sudden were reignited. Um, this is also around the time when you get like the first Buck Cherry album, which was a real anomaly for yeah. the time, which would then lead into you get in the early 2000s, you get like the darkness and Danko Jones and, and some other stuff that was a nods to classic metal. Yeah, um, you know, I mean, for, for me, what really kicked hair metal into gear back in the day was Motley Crue's Home Sweet Home. That was what sent the metallic genres supernova. We saw a band like Crue that was cultish, arena-sized, but just sent them into the national consciousness, and it was huge, and Poison, Cinderella, and all those popular bands uh, followed. And one of the things that, that I really noticed in 98 or so when the new metal era off one of the things that sent it to the next level was Kid Rock's Only God Knows Why, that song. Remember that? Mm-hmm. Is that on the Devil Without a Cause album? 
Yeah, that was the uh, the late single that had a. I mean, it was basically a ballad, and it had the uh, the road movie video him having to go through all these existential crises and quiet moments as he's on the road because it's so lonely. But that song to me was very much just basically "Home Sweet Home," but rewritten by Kid Rock. Uh, so I, I thought the song that kind of killed metal in the first place helped bring it back to that phenomenal level. You know, now so, people could listen to the new metal era and get things like Kid Rock that, that didn't just play to angry young kids. So I think uh, we may have forgotten the maybe this will be controversial. The most important band of for metal in the '90s, and I don't think what they did became uh, as re- relevant until the later decade, and that's Caius. Because, you know, they start in 92, they're kind of done by, like, 95. But all of a sudden, towards the end of the 90s, you start seeing bands like, well, obviously, Queens of the Stone Age forms, and then Fu Manchu, and sort of all of this, like, stoner, fuzzy rock that I think really... Yeah, very seminal bands. Yeah, I mean, you just, it starts taking off like wildfire. now you've got you know tons of bands in that genre but then that starts to like create you know kind of um, almost post-metal bands like baroness for example or the sword you know these kind of like throwbacks to classic metal but also kind of have a stoner proggy kind of combination going on i mean you know again with with my classic rock obsession i mean bands like that you know think about what what long-haired dirtbags look like in the 70s. You know, classic mm-hmm. rock radio just won't update itself. So bands like The Sword that probably should be on alternative radio, you know, if there were guys from the 70s driving around in their vans with long hair, smoking way too much weed, uh, they wouldn't be listening to The Eagles. They'd be listening to uh, Fu Manchu. And they'd be listening to Baroness and Mastodon. Mm-hmm. But radio, because it's useless and, and stuck in the past, um, won't accept these things. So they're seen as metal things, but, I mean, they might as well be Ted Nugent for, for what their function is, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can see that. Interesting thing that I found, which I don't I know if you guys dug into the early 2000s or not, or not but um, in 2000, Linkin Park, they put out Hybrid Theory. That is the best-selling debut album of the 21st century. Hmm. <laughs> what? It is. It's crazy. It is. It, it has sold diamond, right? Like over 10 million. Yeah. So for a debut album by an artist, it's it's number one. Uh, yeah, I mean that's that's the ultimate kind of the postmodern peak of the rap rock new metal thing. I mean everything is in there. You got Depeche Mode. You got guitars. You got rap. You got everything isn't there a guy with a turntable yeah 
Yep. It pretty much covers everything. But is that also the uh, last, like, significant album of that genre? Yeah, yeah pretty much. I mean, that, I'm, a, I'm a huge Bloodhound Gang fan. I think that musically they are underrated, but certainly they're not as popular, significant, or large as, uh, as Linkin Park. I won't even pretend to argue that. No, my, I'm just thinking, yeah, that, that I, think, I, I think that's the last time metal of any sort had a mainstream impact outside of what Josh Homie's able to do with Queens of the Stone Age yeah. and his various uh, he doesn't projects. he doesn't sell records like that but he doesn't I mean, no, he, he makes... doesn't sell records like that he's he's yeah. much more of a of a anomaly it's just that he's able to you know work with some big artists on some certain yeah now it, now it seems to me that there are maybe as metal as many metal fans as there ever were but they're spread between so many bands now. I mean, you can go see a metal band in Cleveland five nights a week, probably. Mm-hmm. And there are a lot more bands on the bills than there used to be. So I don't know if 10 million people are buying records, but you know, you have so many established genres as we were talking about. That, um, I don't. I don't know. I I can't even. I don't even know if I could name an sevenfold single. And they're probably not as big as Lincoln Park, but they sell a lot of records. Yeah. Yeah. Also, I what's I don't understand that success. Like, I'm always perplexed that. I mean, I'm sure they're fine. I don't know, but they seem to be. Um, I don't know, just way bigger than I ever think they are. <laughs> what's yeah. an important thing to notice, and I think we've seen it at all, a, a lot of shows, is that it's okay to go to a a, a heritage metal band show. And it's cool to see a dad taking his son to his first rock show. Like when I saw Iron Maiden a few years ago, and they were they were uh, essentially playing big hits throughout the eighties. Uh, it was like the, I mean, it, it, <laughs> I mean, it, it was it was pretty much every Iron Maiden song that the average Iron Maiden fan wants to hear. That was played. And so many fathers were there with their sons. And same with, uh, you know, the Mayhem Festival, uh, Taste of Chaos, that kind of stuff. Uh, that it's, you know, it's, hey, you have you had teenagers in the 80s. They are now parents. And they now have teenagers. And they take them to go see metal bands. And it's this cool bridging of, uh, you know, parent, child, but there's also Avenged Sevenfold where it's like, what the hell is this? Yeah. Uh, and it seems like Avenged Sevenfold definitely takes a lot of influence from 90s metal. But they do it in they do it for like, you know, the hard rock metal and emo crowds. Yeah, I think that's what uh, it's that combination that's I think makes it successful. Right. But do they have like big singles? Like, does anybody know their songs? Yeah. Bad Country. Yeah, they, they, they've had more commercial airplay than most, but you know, certainly not a transcendent moment like uh, Linkin Park. Okay. Yeah, there's still that divide with uh, major radio station. It's like, oh, there's screaming on it, so we can't play it, you know? <laughs> um, but that definitely doesn't hurt a lot of teenagers from going out. It doesn't stop a lot of teenagers from going out to the Warp Tour, and a lot of bands that play Warp Tour are just like it's teenager metal and as i said earlier teenagers they have to have bands that they can get into so that later on they might get into bands that 
you know, their parents or the older brother really liked. It's it's just like you, you just got to accept that like, hey, right now you might have a niece or nephew that's all about Pierce the Veil. But maybe in a few years you could be talking about Caius or Carcass or Converge. It's just like that's the way things are. And, uh, you know, it's it's OK. I mean, it, it seems like metal is much more accepted across the board now. It, it, there's no pressure of like. You know, White Snake can go out and play the White Snake version that it was in the late '80s. Now, in 2016, instead of having the the pressure of what it what it was like to be White Snake in 1993, I watched. Uh, I think a alternative press did like an award show. I think it was yeah. from Cleveland, maybe two years ago or so, when it was broadcast yeah, on TV. Doing an annual awards show. They're they're in uh, Columbus this year because of the RNC. Okay. So I hadn't followed what I hadn't read Alternative Paris in forever. So I had no idea like what they were about. So as I'm watching this, I think every band, every band that was on the show performing or won an award was a metal band of some kind. It was you know some motionless invites or yeah that stuff. And I was like, oh well, okay. Like apparently, alternative music is now metal. <laughs> like. It, there was no other other bands. They were all like, you know, sort of these hardcore, uh, black, gothy metal bands. It was it was pretty crazy. Oh yeah, you had your Black Veil Brides. Um, you had Bullet. For yeah, My and Black Veil Brides' latest record was produced by Bob Rock. Yeah, and uh, you know, it's it's just like, hey, it's not for me. But I mean, you you have a band like Ghost. Ghost is pretty awesome. <laughs> yeah, I, I think, you know, as we were saying before the show, I, I think you know, over the 90s, uh, kind of the, from, from my perspective, the arc of metal in the 90s was splintering. You know, it was a couple things at the beginning of the 90s, then it split off into genres. We haven't talked about the underground very much. But toward the end of the 90s, when Autofest came back, all these different bands came together, and now you had Hatebreed, and now you had Slipknot playing on the same bills and Ozzy coming back and Maiden reunited bigger and better than ever and Slayer still going strong and you know I, I think that was kind of the the tail end of the 90s Ozfest saw the reunification of metal and now it's still going strong to the point where we're not even really in touch with that next generation so much but it's still there Well, to Jay's point is metal essentially alternative rock has I mean, is alternative rock basically not rock in the sense that you would think of it in the 90s with like Nirvana and Pearl Jam, but that that space of slightly, you know, underground, but known through known by the teenagers of today that Eric mentioned is is metal now filling that void as a, you know, just below the radar of Rolling Stone and whatever pitchfork or whatever, whatever the tastemakers are these days. And, um, it's up to, uh, you know, like AP to do the, the work of, of discovering these bands that are, you know, cause I don't know any of those new metal bands. I, that's all stuff I need to check out. No, I mean, there are a lot of good metal bands now and it's not, not a, I mean, there's a strain of metal bands that they, covers but i mean if you read decibel there's a lot of good stuff out there that is traditional metal that is not as uh, pop oriented 
you know, in some ways, uh, the alternative press crowd you know, represents the fruition of what we talked about before, where music no longer has to be an either-or proposition. You know, the people that read alternative press are not just emo people. You know, they don't see a contradiction between listening to uh, Paramore and Motionless and White and, um, you know, some of the newer bands of that ilk. Uh, but, you know, certainly there's not as much overlap between a band like um, Motionless and White and, a, and the kind of stuff you're going to read about in Decibel, you know. Yeah, to me, there's there's basically for, I don't know, it seems like there's either alternative metal, which is all those bands that I mentioned that are all over uh, alternative press, or there's alternative pop, which is, I think, the other thing that seems like kids are into, where it's, you know, slightly more credible version of pop music where, you know, uh, it's a couple people, you know, a couple people playing instruments instead of just being pure straight pop. But it's at the end of the day, you know, it's like that's the seems to be the two spectrums. There's not like a whole lot in the middle. Do you think of an example, Jay, of like that? Like Lana Del Rey and like all of that kind of, you know, slightly introspective, you know, but ultimately just pop music i mean you could say adele is that you know what i mean like it's not it's not like uh you know she's not um what's her name britney spears or something there's some credibility there but it's still it's just pop music you know what i mean gotcha all right let's put a bow on this particular can we do can we do one thing yeah can we get everybody to name their favorite 90s metal record Mm. all right let's do that Let's go around the room, the virtual room. Check your lists. Name your favorite <laughs> 90s oh, metal record, however you define metal. Because that could be many different subgenres and genres. So I, I can start. Hey, we we have established at this point that it's okay to curse, right? Oh, yeah. Fucking Slayer! <laughs> 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 All right, that one's in. Uh, Chip? Uh, Pantera's Vulgar Display of Power. Okay, that's a good pick. Nobody's going to argue that, I, th- I think. Eric? I'm going to go with a record that I only discovered in the last 10 years, but man, does it still hold up, and it obviously had a major influence on the new wave of American metal in the last 15 years, and I'm going with At the Gates' Slaughter of the Soul. Uh, is there a particular Slayer album, DX, or just all of them? <laughs> no, I just I just wanted to shop fucking Slayer because that's what us fans do. Uh, no, nah, Slayer was was not among the best metal albums of the '90s. You know, I think Slayer treaded water uh, at best. Uh, you know, probably the, the the best metal album of the '90s is probably Slaughter of the Soul at the Gates. Traditional metal. My favorite heavy record the 90s would probably be either Nine Inch Nails Broken or uh, Ministry, what we call Psalm 69. Uh, Possibly Rage Against the Machine's second album, Evil Empire. Those are my favorite heavy records of the 90s. Those, to me, represented a progression and evolution of where metal was going. You know, I think they're a lot more engaging and lively than... um, 
you know, what the, the thrash bands were doing at the time. Uh, my favorite Slayer album of the 90s is Undisputed Attitude, the covers album, where they're just playing hardcore songs and, for my money, knocking them out of the park. Um, so I'm personally more partial to that than Slaughter uh, of the Soul. But my favorite heavy records are those, you know, Nine Inch Nails, Ministry. Um, the Helmet's really good, too, Rage Against the Machine. So uh, have I not answered the question? No, you've answered it. You're good. Jay, what about you? Uh, I'll say I, I really genuinely love the Life, Sex, and Death record. It's just so such a combination of of everything in the 90s all in one in a very bizarre with a very bizarre vocalist um and another one that i guess would be right there is is probably credit to conformity's deliverance i listened to that to a ton when it came out and it's one whenever i put it on it's it still holds up really well and sounds very close to a lot of bands to what a lot of bands are doing now cool what about you tim well you know i i would have to say uh and i i don't know if it's fair to column metal but like helmets meantime was a huge record for me um, yeah it's that really holds up well really yeah does. and that's the sweet spot for them like i don't really love the stuff before it the stuff after it is okay but that album to me like just it rocked my world um tools undertow was a big record for me oh how, how have we not mentioned tool until this point <laughs> i know i, I kind of felt like i gotta Oops. mention them because uh that again is like one of those bands that was like so outside of anything that was going on and you just like you just stare at them like what the fuck are they doing like what is this and yeah, it was uh, like tool was more prog than metal or yeah. hard rock but they seemed to blend it all in together Yeah, those two records are are, and then I, uh, the first two Rage Against the Machine records are, they're so unique and in each yeah, there's nothing way. like and, those, man. No, they're Not, just they're just from another planet. God knows a lot of bands tried. Yeah, and unfortunately, I think they, in some cases, have been diluted because they've been ripped off. So people are like, oh, that just sounds like Rage Against the Machine. Well, no, it doesn't because Rage Against the Machine we're doing something. Far more yeah, I mean, it's 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 important to point out that new metal now is a punchline and rap rock is a punchline. And for a while there, they were not. They were absolutely not. So right. at the time, I mean, that was some of the most exciting heavy stuff that has ever happened, not just at the time. So let's put a bow, our final bow on this. Fucking Slayer! There we go, fucking Slayer. <laughs> our Metal Evolution Roundtable, we have uh, exceeded my expectations uh by this excellent panel that we've had i need to thank um our returning champions mr eric grubbs of uh, writer of post podcast do you know who you are dallas observer you can find him over at theme park experience.blogspot.com and 
on the Twitter at Eric underscore Grubs. Thank you for coming back, Eric. I'm Thanks sure for having you'll me, be guys. Back for a future episode sometime soon. Yeah, and we're not going to talk about metal on the no. next time. No. <laughs> uh, Chip Midnight, we can find you at kidsinterviewbands.com. Any metal interviews coming up? Uh, not the, I don't know. No. That's all right. <laughs> but that you have interviewed um, some metal bands that are in the archive. Fucking Slayer. There you go. Anthrax, Ghost, Corn, yeah, Monomarth. The, the first uh, kids interview band interview I saw was the one with uh, Tom Araya. And I loved how before he answered the first question, it's like, could you speak up? I've been screaming my head off for the past 30 years. <laughs> and, and he said, and I don't have my hearing aids in. <laughs> uh, and also, Mr. DX Ferris, um, the author Thanks, of Rain in Blood by Slayer, as well as the Slayer 66 and two-third entry. Uh, and also the recently released Suburban Metal Dad Compendium 1 Raging Bullshit Years 3 and 4 Volume 1, a very long title. <laughs> yeah, that is a uh, compilation. It's the first compilation book of a webcomic that I draw twice a uh, twice a week for Pop Dose. And the, the premise of that is that it's uh, it's a guy that grew up listening to Megadeth and now he's older and he has a family and he has responsibilities so you can't punch your boss, but you want to. <laughs> so check that out you can kind of check out all the bullshit in one place at uh, checkoutmybutt.com and that'll link you so, to everything and that's not a joke so you're the one that got that URL damn you <laughs> yeah I couldn't believe it was still available Yeah. so yeah Slayer Books uh, Suburban Metal Dad uh, various clips got a uh, Slayer YouTube channel got it all there checkoutmybutt.com Ex- excellent uh, I want to remind everybody who's listening, uh, if you like what you heard, please con- consider leaving some positive feedback over at iTunes. And of course, you can join the conversation um, at Facebook, Twitter, and digmeoutpodcast.com. And you can uh, subscribe at Patreon for bonus material. I'm sure there'll be some bonus material from this episode from our rambling before we started. And, All the uh, server space and free people. Yeah, exactly. A little, uh, little something, something, huh? That's how that's how we keep this thing afloat. So for Jay, I'm Tim. We're out. We'll be back next week with another episode of Dig Me Out. Thanks for listening. You can support the podcast by becoming a Patreon subscriber at patreon.com backslash dig me out or requesting a review for the 2016 season at our request a review page at digmeoutpodcast.com. 